you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. Today, I'm really happy to welcome on Tasha Panyar Neira Mitdi of Alpha Finance Labs. Welcome, Tasha. Did I get the pronunciation perfect? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yep, you got the pronunciation correct. All right. Well, thank you for the coaching uh, before we started. So Alpha Finance Labs is a ecosystem of automated yield maximizing DeFi cross-chain products starting on the Binance smart chain and Ethereum. The vision is to reform traditional finance in a decentralized manner. Um, you were previously head of strategy at Band Protocol. You have been a product manager at Tencent and an investment banker at places like Jefferies. Um, and you've pretty much worked all around the world from San Francisco to London to, to Bangkok. So the reason why I wanted to get you on the show, there are several. Um, firstly, you I, I came across you by seeing that you were backed by some of the leading um, VCs in the DeFi space, including Spartan Group, Multicoin Cap, and Defiance Capital. Um, you're actually the first founder we've had from Thailand. Um, and back when I was traveling out in Asia, in Southeast Asia, uh, tail end of last year, it feels like a lifetime ago now, um, Thailand actually kept on coming up in a number of conversations um, about how it was hotting up as a destination for crypto and potentially for DeFi more generally. So I, I really want to kind of get to the heart of that. And of course, that's where a lot of the band protocol team and founders are also from. So you are our first founder from Thailand. And so I want to kind of go into what's happening there. Um, and you've also been announcing a number of really exciting partnerships. I believe uh, just this week, um, announced a partnership with SCB, B10X, which is the venture arm of one of the largest commercial banks in Thailand, Siam Commercial Bank. Um, so want to explore with you and understand your views on institutional adoption of DeFi generally. Um, and of course, that in the spectrum of what we mean by institutional. And of course, the, the retail adoption that will hopefully be coming off the back of this specific collaboration. So um, to give a background as to your origin story, going all the way back, uh, you studied chemistry at Stanford, I believe, Stanford Summer College. Yeah, so that was more of a summer program when I was in high school, but my undergraduate degree was in economics at UC Berkeley. Right. And then before that, you were at uh, an international school in Bangkok, Thailand. Um, and then, as you say, you went on to Berkeley and did a BA in economics, graduating in 2016 and um, received a number of awards whilst you were there, uh, including uh, leadership awards, scholarship. You uh, were a finalist in the Big Ideas Berkeley competition, which is an innovation contest at Berkeley and several other things. Um, so clearly you uh, excelled within academia. Um, and then you spent um, a few years interning at a mix of different 
financial institutions, I guess, venture capital, investment banking, private equity, the likes of Creative Ventures in San Francisco, uh, Wilshire, Patra Securities in, in Bangkok, and also uh, Bangkok, well, EY and then Deloitte, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. You then went to be an investment banking analyst um, uh, at places like Jefferies uh, here in the UK uh, in 2018, um, product manager at Tencent uh, from 18 to 20, um, and then you joined Ban Protocol as head of strategy uh, beginning part of this year, Jan 2020. So um, tell us a little bit about your journey from Tencent, I guess, into into crypto and and specifically and yeah definitely so i have uh, been investing in crypto since about 2016 17 and pretty much follow the industry since then and what i realized is you know i i, I came from traditional finance so so finance is something that i have always been interested in uh, and also cryptocurrency and blockchain so you know it it used to be something separate uh, when you know back in the days and and there was not huge adoption of DeFi um, and then when I uh, know of uh, Band Protocol um, and they are at, at the moment that I joined they are actually uh, working on their new chain pretty much Band chain and and changed from. Uh, providing data uh, on Ethereum itself uh, to to be a separate chain. And that's when I realized that, you know, there is a huge gap that I can bring to them and pretty much drive the adoption of uh, data oracle to various DeFi protocols. Um, so I could also tap into the decentralized finance area that I'm a lot more interested in. Uh, and, you know, that's really much how I really dig deeper into DeFi and saw a lot of the gaps that can be filled and which is why I left to build Alpha Finance Lab with my colleague Nipun as well. And so you did that in uh, July 2020. So it's all, you know, relatively uh, new, very fast moving. Um, Maybe before we go into some of the detail, it'd be interesting to understand. So as I said in in the intro, um, when I was traveling in Asia last year, um, especially when I was in places like uh, Singapore, but even um, in mainland China, Thailand kept on coming up in conversation in the context of crypto and DeFi. What what's what's going on there, and is is there is there a very deliberate reason why you've chosen to kind of base Alpha Finance Labs out of um, Bangkok rather than say moving to to Singapore or a, a different hub? Mm-hmm. Good question. I mean, several reasons. Uh, number one, definitely is there is a lot of demand and interest from the local community. And as you have uh, you know, mentioned already, that there is significant you know, conversations that, that Thailand was brought up. And I think that's mainly because of the, the developing country nature where the structure and the financial systems are not as strong as other developed countries. So that's definitely number one. Number two is that I have been in the space and have talked to multiple people, including different banks, uh, institutional players, or even bigger, uh, you know, bigger firms like Tencent itself, where I used to work. And a lot of them are actually aware of blockchain of DeFi, and they are keenly to, you know, move towards that direction when opportunities arise. So, so when combining a lot of different things, and I already was here in Thailand when I uh, was starting Alpha Finance Lab, then I realized, you know, it makes sense to be here. 
So, so that's pretty much the the background story. And so, um, I know we, we might get onto this a little bit later, especially with the work that you're doing with one of the commercial banks there. But um, I also heard that at a regulatory level, the, the government is fairly pro crypto or at least experimentation in fintech generally. And I guess um, when you mentioned that there's you know fairly immature kind of retail banking, do you see that as a an opportunity to go over the top of I guess what might might be a legacy financial system anywhere else? Uh definitely there is, you know, a chance. Uh but at the same time I would uh you know I would give it some some room for 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 the government to to you know experiment and take time because when it comes to governmental projects it definitely can take time and that's why we and 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 the Siam Commercial Bank that we partner with are looking to speed up that governmental processes and you know their attention to push DeFi forward because if there's no partnership happen if there's no projects like us in the country then um, it could take many more years than than otherwise. Yeah, and I'm interested to know what is the attitude towards crypto generally um, within an organization like Tencent. I know there's a number of initiatives coming out, uh, especially in the kind of province of Shanghai or the city of Shanghai. But you know, generally, if you if you look in a, and I don't know, were you a, a, a re, were you involved in a regional part of the Tencent business? Um, yeah, somewhat. The product that I worked on was pretty much uh, developed out of here, but it okay. is reported, you know, to Tencent China pretty much to oversee the growth of Southeast Asia expansion. And, and we are, you know, liaison with them on that front. But in terms of, you know, their sentiment on crypto, I can't speak much to it. But if I were to make more, you know, my, my own assumption from what I've known uh, of their occurrences with crypto or even their relationship with uh, Chinese government, there are a number of things that I would say. Number one is pretty much that um, China and, and big companies like Tencent definitely are really aware. And not sure if you've known that Chinese government already uh, paid out some of the governmental employees in their digital yuan. So they yes. are very fast on that. And An in terms of, of, yeah, even if they haven't gone into crypto, you know, uh, explicitly, but there are a number of projects that they have used similar concepts like digital coin and digital uh, payment. Um, maybe it's very different, but if you look in terms of uh, the concept, underlying concept itself, uh, one of the products is called Jukes, which is the music streaming, and they are uh, pretty much finding a way to apply the concept of digital coin and distribute to the users. So users have more say in, you know, uh, how the interaction is, how, how to interact with the artists. So if you look at the underlying level, the concepts are pretty much quite similar in some aspects, although more amateur than, than a typical crypto coin. Right. So, um, so maybe before we go into the specifics of Alpha, it would be good to get an understanding of, I guess, the motivation behind setting up Alpha? Like, what is it a response to? Is it a specific gap in the DeFi space? Is it um, a particular problem that you think uh, could be addressed? How do you frame the reason for Alpha before we go into the product itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are multiple 
gaps that I saw and Nipun saw and and we agreed on these things and that's why you know uh, we built Alpha Finance Lab with these vision. So so the three problems that we saw pretty much number one is that the a lot of the projects actually spend time a lot of time building products that in the end uh, don't get adoption or maybe it's something that is too advanced for DeFi landscape right now. So, so, so that's pretty much one, one, one gap that we see, right? There is a gap between supply and demand. There are a, a lot of great products out there as the supply, but it doesn't fit with the demand right now. Perhaps maybe it's something that the demand doesn't want, or some, sometimes it's because the supply of products are, are too mature, you know, comparing to the current demand landscape. So that's number one. Uh, number two is that there are a lot of products as well that are not as user-friendly. And we believe that if we want to drive, ex drive DeFi to, to, to the next stage and expand it even further, we need to make it more friendly, uh, make it so that users can, you know, like make it easy for them to use. Um, and, and welcome more new DeFi users by doing so. And pretty much the third one is how there are so many um, DeFi projects on Ethereum. And that in the end, I mean, the good thing is that there is high composability, but the bad thing is also that drives up the fees and in turns, you know, turn away the retail users from using these products that were built for them. So we combine a lot of different things that we saw and pretty much form our strategy around that and our products around our strategy. And to, to give you a bit, you know, very high level of how we work and the strategy that we do to pretty much address all of these. Uh, one is that we, you know, we take time to understand the problems, to understand how you know, we can come up with innovative solutions, run simulations on different ideas, and then bounce with different investors, in, invest in uh, different people in the space, right? But at the same time, we don't rush to build something that we don't believe is going to stick to the market, is going to be really innovative. So that's why we also have the second strategy, which is a bit different from understanding the problem and, and really see how we can build and solve that problem. For the second strategy, pretty much to understand the landscape and see what else is, you know, what else our users want to use, but they don't have the, the, the product to use for. And we match the first strategy and the second strategy to build the products. So to give you a very you know, high level, Alpha Homora came about, uh, Alpha Homora, which is one of the, the first product that we built, came about because we spotted number of market gaps. And I can tell you later, you know, at, at a later time or, or for the next question, but pretty much once we launched, we were able to um, get a total value locked up about 19 million within 24 hours. So we combined a number of market gaps that we saw and really um, pushed the product out with product market fit. So now we are going to expand from there and then drive DeFi forward. And so, so that's pretty much you know, on the usage part and, and building products that have demand. But at the same time, Alpha Homora and all the products that we're going to build will also have something that's very user-friendly. So at the back end, Alpha Homora actually automates a number of steps for users 
And from the user's perspective, they only have to click on three clicks and that's pretty much done. So, so that's the second thing. And the third thing that I mentioned is how, uh, you know, DeFi on Ethereum um, is getting very, uh, you know, crowded. And I think in order for us to help uh, position DeFi, uh, you know, beyond Ethereum, of course, it's going to be Ethereum will be a key component, but we have to start expanding DeFi beyond that. And that's why we are building our second product on both Binance Smart Chain and Ethereum to drive that uh, cross-chain DeFi forward. Yeah, and I know um, cross-chain DeFi is an important um, part of your strategy as well as cross-chain liquidity. Um, so just to kind of close off on the, the structure of Alpha Labs itself. So is it fair to describe you almost as a, a studio to incubate and kind of rapidly test and deploy DeFi products, would these things become their own businesses, or um, are is it a kind of a, a suite of smart contracts that effectively could be used by the same user? Or are they or are they for different customer segments entirely? Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of both actually. So each different product solves their own problems and tap its own unaddressed demand segment. But at the end of the day, there is going to be a way to leverage those products together. So as an example, Alpha Homora, uh, there are two types of users on Alpha Homora. One is ETH lender. So you can get the highest ETH lending rate on Alpha Homora, period. You know, we, you know, just before this podcast, it was about 16% interest rate on ETH, just from lending ETH. And you cannot find that anywhere else. So that's from you know lending perspective. The other user on Alpha Homora is yield farmers. So if they want to go leverage on yield farming, that's where you can do it. This is the only place where you can do it. Um, so so working together, um, you have this one product called Alpha Homora, right? But technically, by taking uh, or I mean by yeah by taking leverage position on yield farming pool on Alpha Homora, you're actually shorting ETH because you have to borrow some ETH from the contract uh, to you farm. And as a result, that's how you can leverage a second product, which is in the perpetual swap area to take the counter position or the long on ETH position so you can hedge your risk out. And that's how we, we, we are going to connect between the two products, um, maybe on the front end or maybe on the smart contract level, but at the end of the day, there's going to be a connection between um, the two products. Understood. And so, at least as far as I understand it, um, and, and I appreciate this is a very large casual term, but like Asia generally, and maybe as a subset Southeast Asia, the perception has been in, in the West and, you know, my perspective formed by people like Dovi, that Asia's been slow to catch on to DeFi. And... So I guess the, the classic assumption would be that somehow you would be localizing um, existing DeFi. But actually, uh, it, it sounds very different. It sounds like you're, you're more focused on uh, introducing entirely new innovations, but perhaps using a local base, a, a, a local retail base to kind of grow liquidity and stuff. Is, is that a correct assumption? Um, I would 
not agree totally. Uh, we, although the team is based mostly out of here, uh, our users and our community is actually, you know, globally. And majority of the users on Alpha Homora are actually from the US, the UK, China. Uh, and we, we are looking to expand, you know, beyond uh, these three regions for sure. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, crypto and blockchain definitely is a global market. So li liquidity locally helps, but at the same time, we are not limiting to, to liquidity here. Yes. So, so how much emphasis will be placed on the localization of, of your products? Or are you kind of just starting from the, on the basis of, you know, these products are going to be introduced at a, at a, at a global level? because of the permissionless nature, I guess. Mm. So I would say it's not focused on localized uh, local community in a sense that, you know, we are pushing the adoption uh, to people locally, even though they are not in DeFi, because how we think of it is uh, a lot of the demand right now in DeFi um, has been captured, but there are also a number of areas that haven't been tapped with the current, you know, DeFi landscape. So that's the target that we're targeting. If Thai people or local people are in that target, then definitely they're, they're, they're within our uh, target users. But in terms of, you know, pushing the, the local adoption, I think that's more of on the education side and also on working with local big firms um, like SCB 10X, which is the venture arm of one of the you know, largest commercial bank in Thailand to pretty much push out forward the DeFi landscape in Thailand because uh, without our help, without this partnership, it would take a long time, as I said earlier. So I think in on the local landscape side, it's more on what can we do to change the landscape more and as a result can drive more adoption of DeFi from the local retail or institutional players. Great. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into that working relationship. It sounds really exciting um, to understand uh, the kind of feedback loop that's happening there. So let's jump into the products. As I understand it, you've got Alpha Lending. I think you mentioned already Alpha Hamora. Um, and was there a third one that you've recently announced or is that an extension of one of these existing products? Um, so we have Alpha Homora, and the second product is uh, this new uh, product in the perpetual swap area. We haven't had a name yet, um, but it's pretty much an ex extension as well as a totally new product. So you can think of it as an extension from Homora because it allows you to take the market neutral leverage position, right? Uh, by using Alpha Homora, you're shorting ETH, and as a result, you can take the long position on this perpetual swap product that we're building. Uh, and so that's you know, how it extends from Homora in a sense, but it's also a, a new target segment that we're capturing because we're actually capturing you know, the traders who are trading long and short perpetual swaps already on either centralized solutions or the others in decentralized products. And we are implementing it in a very different way from the other uh, decentralized protocols out there. And we think that, you know, the space for a perpetual swap is really, really large. If you look at the trading volume on the centralized uh, solutions like Binance, um, it's about, you know, 2 billion 24 hour trading volume. And that's six times more than Bitcoin, 
spot trading. So the two billion provincial volume is only for Bitcoin, you know. So that's how large it is. And if you look at that number in the decentralized protocols uh, available out there, there are not that many out there, and uh, the the trading volume is also not as high. So we believe that there is a large market that we could capture, and there is also enough room for multiple designs. And other other protocols um, have different designs, and let's see how we can work together in complementing the designs. So you talked a little bit about uh, this interoperability out of the gate. So as you mentioned, I mean naturally. Um, it works with Ethereum as it is, um, but you've also uh, rolled out across Binance Smart Chain. Um, so how do you see, well, firstly, are you looking at other um, environments like Polkadot or Cosmos? And then secondly, with something like Binance Smart Chain, how do you look at the relationship between what you're building um, and, and Binance and centralized exchanges like Binance? Mm, good question. So yes, we have looked at the other chains, definitely. And 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 the reason that we say we're starting on Binance Smart Chain and Ethereum, that's because we're not limiting to these two. So when we find fit, we're definitely going to expand to other chains as well. And in terms of, uh, you know, Binance itself, we definitely see a lot of synergy that we can bring together. So first of all, the perpetual swap product that I mentioned, it's going to be on both Ethereum and Binance Smart Chain, right? And Ethereum definitely because um, there's a huge, uh, you know, DeFi demand right there. And at the same time on Binance Smart Chain, there's a huge group of traders who are already trading on Binance. And if they are looking for a decentralized version, then they can find that version on Binance Machine very easily. So they will still be in the Binance ecosystem and still be able to use their perpetual swap, uh, be it on centralized or decentralized version. And you know, down the line, there are a number of ways that we are looking to work with, with Binance and also the other centralized uh, exchanges to really much bridge and onboard those users who are using centralized exchanges, whenever they're ready to come to DeFi, then we would be helping them to, to bridge to DeFi. Um, so that's pretty much down the line of our goal. Uh, and that's why we want to start making relationship and, and helping them, uh, helping Binance to grow BSC uh, right now so that when that adoption from CFI users come in, then we would be ready to help them. Yeah, and I think this is this is a really interesting debate in DeFi generally now about where adoption comes from, where the demand comes from. As you said, there's like an, almost an oversupply. Um, and so on the one hand, you have centralized exchanges like Binance. On the other hand, you have a bank like SAB. Um, and maybe somewhere in the middle, you have some fintech startups. I mean, I could imagine that all three of those could be seen as a distribution channel for the product, the DeFi products that you create um, and gateways to, to kind of bring new demand into the system. So as a I mean, young organization in, in terms of, you know, relative size and maturity, how do you how do you engage? Well, firstly, strategically, how do you see um, 
do you see these as decent distribution channels and how do you then engage with them and like an engagement for example with the more extreme end of the spectrum uh, a, a banking institution in in thailand like as a startup that's that can be very um, demanding from from a time perspective from a resource perspective so sorry two questions there so strategically um uh, you know how, how do you look at that spectrum of institutional organizations uh, do, you, do you see them as a distribution channel and then second question how do you prioritize and engage with each of those as an early startup mm-hmm. distributional channel you, you can think of you know multiple ways of what you distribute so let's say with binance uh, what we're what we're really helping to to drive is not only expanding DeFi beyond ethereum and as a result uh, bring more users, be it Binance users, be it other retail users who want to enter into DeFi, but Ethereum gas fee is too high, or be it you know uh, Binance users from centralized exchange that are trading on Binance already, um, but now they are exposed to DeFi on BSC. So if you look from Binance perspective, there are um, a number of ways that we can distribute to, to this ecosystem or pretty much add value to this ecosystem. Uh, number one, pretty much, is to build on BSC uh, so that when uh, these demand uh, come in, we would be able to capture and pretty much help grow DeFi on this chain. And at the end of the day, we are you know here for the long run. And hopefully, we are also going to bridge multiple products and in multiple chains so that we could help drive this interoperability um, for for DeFi. In the beginning, it might be just on the asset level. Uh, For instance, if your assets on Ethereum can be, you know, parked to uh, port to BSC and then cross over and and use the different products onto ecosystem very easily. Uh, but later on, we really hope to drive uh, the connection beyond just token transfer. So, so that would take a bit more time, but we are eyeing on that as well. And just on that point, uh, sorry to interrupt, on that, on that point, do, do you see the things that you'll be building in the labs as, um, as a standalone product and or a feature that could then be enabled on the Binance exchange as a, as a consequence of your integration into their, their chain? Um, there are multiple things. So number one, depending on the product itself, product nature itself, sometimes it would make sense to only be on Ethereum. For instance, Alpha Homora right now, as of right now, um, because we're building on Uniswap. Uh, so it, it is on Ethereum. But at the end of the day, we are... Um, not limiting to Ethereum. And if there are a number of yield farming pools that are very attractive on BSC and we at, we evaluate the risks and it makes sense, then definitely we're going to deploy Alpha Homura on BSC to, to capture um, another demand segment. Um, so, so that's one point. The second point is that um, some of the products would make sense on both chains. And if they are going to be on both chains, then there may be some features that will make sense to add on BSC because of the cheaper gas uh, and the faster transaction processing time. So let's say with the perpetual swap product, when we launch on Ethereum and Binance Smart Chain, uh, then we're going to see how we can you know, optimize the features, optimize the user experience to the maximum 
given what we are, uh, you know, given with given the different blockchain that we're working on. So one example can be, you know, with Binance Smart Chain being faster um, and, and cheaper gas, perhaps we can enable the leverage to be higher. So that's just one example in terms of, you know, how we are uh, thinking of deploying different products and having different products to work together. Um, great. And then uh, the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, this engagement that you have with uh, SAB 10X. Um, so how do you see that relationship? And uh, I, I know off air, you mentioned that there's this kind of feedback loop, there's kind of some shared learning. Um, how, yeah, how, how do you understand that relationship? And how, how do you hope it evolves? Mm-hmm. Uh, number of ways. Number one, pretty much, if you think of it in terms of the really long term, right? Uh, how we are how we're going to drive mass adoption would definitely come from education. And education comes from first, you know, the heart of, of, of the institutions who can make the, the change. And pretty much that's the bank. Um, and this is the venture arm, SCP 10X is the venture arm of the bank. They are very interested in DeFi. And by working with us, they are able to adapt a number of different things and see how they can push forward the regulation um, so that they could do multiple projects. For example, they are trying to work on the stablecoin project right now with new learnings and insights that they get from us. Perhaps they can have multiple data points, multiple angles that they can help and push the regula- the regulations to, to be more friendly on that front. So that's pretty much you know, number one on the education and, and really the long-term perspective. And in terms of you know the midterm and near-term uh, perspective, they are also, and we are also getting a lot of uh, pretty much working together and and share the development resources so we can build more alpha products that not only take into account the DeFi landscape, but also take into account the information and insights that financial services people and pretty much the, the resources that have spent years in the financial services um, so that they can bring in those insights and help us to build products that are more um, insightful and pretty much expand the DeFi landscape further as well. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, it's really much on, on who can innovate faster. And in terms of innovation itself, it's definitely not just going to come from ourselves or not just going to come from uh, other uh, DeFi protocols, but I think it's also important to expand to the traditional finance as they have years of experience um, in the traditional finance services and see what we can apply from them. Yeah, fascinating. So I'm going to be interested to know how the engagement happened with SAB. I believe that's um, just for clarification, part of the SIAM, a commercial bank. So, you know, clearly you mentioned earlier the word risk, and I think most people in DeFi appreciate the, the risk that's involved through largely the composability, but of course it has a number of different um, vectors. How do you convince an institution, um, especially one that is, you know, regulated retail bank to firstly appreciate um, and then get comfortable with the level of risk in DeFi now, and then presumably, um, I guess, overcome concerns that by by them introducing that risk into the wider economic system, um, you know, the problems that might come with that. Mm-hmm. 
So, well, first of all, uh, SAB10X isn't new to DeFi, isn't new to crypto. They invested in Ripple. They also invested in BlockFi, which is the lending protocol. So they have you know, expressed interest in DeFi for a long time. Um, and they also have been trying to push out the stablecoin project here in Thailand. So they're working pretty closely with the regulatory uh, segment on that. Um, so, you know, we, as in Alpha Finance Lab, have been in the space and have uh, been talking to SCB 10X about different angles that we can help push DeFi adoption further. Um, so pretty much that's how the partnership came about because we really want to uh, help expand the DeFi landscape, uh, you know, in Thailand or even in Asia and, and beyond. But in terms of risks itself, I believe that there are, you know, definitely if users are using DeFi products now, there are definitely going to be a number of risks that they have to be mindful of. But in terms of the institutional players and, and onboarding retail to DeFi, I believe that's going to take a long time. And that's going to also enter from the least uh, risky products. So for instance, in terms of, you know, lending product as opposed to yield farming. Right, because with you farming, you also have to educate people on impermanent loss, on uh, multiple things uh, as as well. But from lending aspects, I think that's something that if we see adoption from Thailand and if we see adoption from as, as and uh, in developing countries, I think that would come from lending, which is more on the least risky side. But at the end of the day, there will also be you know smart contract risks and other uh, attacks that we have to prevent. And that's why we have a really strong team of researchers and engineers um, to work on that pretty much to mitigate uh, those risks. So just to give you, you know, uh, some of the data points, our CTO Nipun, he got four like gold medals and one silver medal from International Mathematical Olympiad. And he's really strong on the quant uh, computer science part and really the one behind different parameters that we set different pools that we add on Alpha Homora so that there is, you know, high uh, mitigation of attacks, high mitigation of uh, risk, and pretty much make it more friendly to, to new DeFi users. Um, so, you know, as somebody that's rapidly pushing out this, this tech, and but as you say, trying to do it in a very considered way, um, I mean, you mentioned it could be years before we see retail adoption. I mean, by that, do you mean a decade plus? Uh, I wish I could answer <laughs> because I would time the product uh, in a timely manner. <laughs> yes. But at the end of the day, I think you cannot compare um, DeFi timeline in in a traditional timeline as well. As, as we all know, one month in DeFi can mean a number of months or even a year in several industries, right? So I think it definitely depends on the landscape uh, on the, in DeFi and, and see what are um, the things that we can help push forward. But yeah, I think it's going to be a while, but uh, cannot say at all, you know, how many months, how many years from now. I understand, I understand. So maybe to just zoom out, what do you think, as somebody deep in the weeds in DeFi, what do you think is missing you know, for you to enable you to be able to deploy um, 
the products that you want to deploy with a level of, say, security uh, that you'd like. Um, because obviously you're, you can only be as good as the infrastructure that you're, you're building on. And of course, this is still very nascent. Um, so what, what do you think is missing? What do you think are the low-hanging fruit or the kind of critical bits of infrastructure that need to be solved for for you to be able to fully realize your goals at Alpha? Mm, yeah, I think there are multiple things, definitely. Uh, number one, I think what we're really missing is a number of firms for economic audit. Uh, as you have seen, there are, if you if you look at the technical audit itself, there are not that many uh, to begin with that, that deliver very good audit results um, and very thorough results. And, and that's already technical audit, right? And if you look at economic audit, there's pre pretty much none because it's really difficult for, for anyone to also read the code and imply the economic attack from it. So if you look from harvest finance attack, which happened last week, um, you know, the code was working just fine, but the attack came from economic audit. And I think as DeFi grows, capturing more total value locked and real money in there, um, economic audit will be so important um, going forward. So, you know, if, if any firm can start doing that, I think that they can, they can bring a lot of value and also capture a lot of value themselves. Um, the second point is, uh, is also how there are, how there can be a number of ways that help bridge multiple blockchains or multiple layer tools together. So what I'd like to see, um, you know, later on is pretty much that DeFi protocols don't have to choose which blockchain they have to be in. Because right now what I'm seeing is that a number of protocols, a number of products have to choose if they are choosing composability, hence Ethereum, or, you know, low gas fee um, and no composability on other chains. So, so there are some choices that they have to make, but I think the longer term, what would be really nice is pretty much that anyone can build on any chain that they find fit depending on their product and still be able to compose uh, and, and build off of, of each other. And that's pretty much, we would see a, a real like cross-chain DeFi ecosystem. Uh, but there are no tools or no um, you know, available infrastructure for us to move towards that phase yet. But I'm pretty sure a lot of people are, are coming up with different ways to help to, to make that happen because it's not that easy um, and different blockchains have different pros and cons. Uh, so, so people have to be mindful of. So of course, you know, DeFi is already proven it's, it's quite easy to bootstrap liquidity into a network. I mean, you mentioned um, you had several million very quickly within your first product. Um, the the kind of problem, uh, and of course, you know that can create quite promiscuous behaviour from from users. H how do you look at kind of closing the loyalty loop um, to create stickiness around a product which, or in a in a in a sector which is incredibly promiscuous? Mm -hmm. So, if you provide, you know, if your product provide unique value proposition that users cannot find elsewhere then they're going to come back. So like of Ahumora, you can get the highest lending rate on ETH. So that's very clear. And there are a lot of ETH holders out there 
um, who don't want to sell um, to to make money from their ETH. So they can supply to Alpha Homora and get interest rate on ETH. And we actually have pretty high retention rate on Alpha Homora. And how do you achieve that, by the way? How do you achieve the highest interest rate? Yeah, because on the borrow side, the smart contract does one thing. It borrows for you so you can yield farm. So pretty much it's different from other lending protocol. Uh, for the lending, for other lending protocol, uh, users de- deposit to get interest rate, right, as the lender. And if uh, from the borrow side, they borrow and then they find a way to to benefit and, and profit from that borrowed asset themselves. But for Alpha Homora, the borrowers can actually go leverage on yield farming. What that means is pretty much, let's say if they have 100 ETH, they can come in with 100 ETH, they can tell the smart contract and pretty much tell from the front end that they want to uh, yield farm with 2.5 times. So pretty much they are borrowing 150 more ETH. So in total, they're yield farming with 250 ETH and they're paying interest on that borrowed ETH. And as a result, the Alpha Homora contract will yield farm for them. So the contract will automate a number of uh, functionalities that otherwise users would have to do it themselves on multiple transactions, paying multiple number of gas fees. Um, And at the end of the day, the profit that they get, uh, I mean, there are some risks as well, but the profit that they get is high and they are willing to pay for that high borrow interest rate, generating high yields back to the lenders. So we innovate on the borrow side so that there is you know, unique proposition, not only on the borrow side, but also on the lending side. Understood. Okay, great. Well, look, it was a pleasure to have you on, Tasha. Um, I think anybody uh, who launches a startup this year in 2020 um, and uh, survives, it deserves an award. And actually, there's a very good argument to say that if you were going to launch uh, alpha, maybe 2020 would, would be the year to do it um, with everything that's going on in a wider economy. Um, so congratulations as we edge towards the end of your first year. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, Jamie. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. Thank you.